0: Drink card is for Trello. Mm-hmm. And it's I guess it's a plug-in. Is that what they're calling Trello? Drink power cards, power-ups. Yeah. Drink card lets you add information about beers and breweries to your cards on your Trello board. It's for beer nerds and industry professionals and anyone who just likes to organize their craft beer life. <laughs> you can plan your beer purchases, list breweries you want to visit, catalog your beer seller, and share your favorites with friends. Do you have a Trello for that? Do you manage your, your beer inventory? No, I don't, I don't manage beer inventory with anything. I do use untapped sometimes to check in beers that I've drank. That's it. What about you?
1: <laughs> I don't have enough beer laying around to do anything.
0: <clears throat> um, well, John, it's just you and I today. Back to the, uh, the good old original format. The best format. What do you think of the, having guests on?
1: It's fun. It's uh, it brings a another uh, side to the topic, almost a tiebreaker sometimes. Yeah, we born, do we need one? It's either a tiebreaker or a gang up on one person. Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> I feel like we got some uh, some good feedback about it. Some people saying that they like the the format of having guests on. Yeah, I think it kind
1: of. I don't know. Like, I I guess you can make the case that it kind of breaks up the monotony of just two guys talking.
0: But that's true. And it's, you know, to clarify, I don't, I don't view them as interview episodes. I view them as just having a guest on. Right. Just to join the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because I don't, I don't think I have any interviewing skills anyway. Well, I certainly don't. And that takes too much preparation as well. Right. If you want to be effective. Yeah. That's probably loud. Um, Should we talk about our beverage? We should. It's, it's a bit of follow-up too, isn't it? It is follow-up so john brought us a nice little care package here in his cooler a brand new bottle of roku gin from Santori. <laughs> you weren't gonna say it <laughs> i guess that's, i was wondering how you say that santori because i make i feel like they make a lot of different spirits don't they do like whiskey type products as well oh if they do i gotta try it i yeah. I haven't heard of them before, I, so... I'm mean, going to try to go to the website, but it didn't work, so... I did the same.
1: Yeah.
0: It didn't work for you? Yeah. Good job on the website, guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, no, we have... So we have that gin, and then you brought some tonic water and uh, some limes. So we are having a gin and tonic with Roku Gin. Yep. Roku. It's recommended by our last guest, Jody Miner. Miners. Miners. Plural. Miner, miners. It's that's, that's good. I wish I had not done the lime, actually. Yeah, I
1: was debating whether or not to try it straight just to kind of get the, the flavor of it, but it, I,
0: I feel like it's good the way it is. I, I like the lime in it. And the interesting, I'm looking at these. It has like six Japanese botanicals, I guess. Um, it's got yuzu, interesting. And sakura, flower, and the pepper. Sencha tea and gyokuro tea. No, um, I guess no juniper. Which is interesting because I thought if you're going to call it gin in the United States, which this is imported into the United States, that you had to have juniper in it. But that's part of the legal requirement of, of gin. Hmm. Could be wrong. But it, I know nothing about gin. This is my first uh, foray into gin. Really? So. But I like it. Yeah, there's certainly no um, juniper flavor that I'm getting. Yeah, it's good. Very tasty. Later, we have a, uh, a beer experiment. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah so we'll get to that. <clears throat> uh, well, John, what do you want to start with? I have a little thing that I wanted to... It's like a... What do you call it? A PSA or something? Okay. A public... Well, those a
2: public service... Public service announcement. announcement,
1: yeah. Does it involve a, a frying pan and an egg or anything?
2: Oh, <laughs> that, I get it. What Was that uh, your brain on drugs? Yeah, yeah. How can you forget that?
0: Gotta be one of the more popular campaigns out there. Yeah, that was man. What eighties? Yeah, I think so. I was actually looking for. I thought I had a. Uh, I think I God soundboard so messed up. Anyway, so what this is is we open up the thing here. I actually saw that Chris Peterson tweeted this. Okay. But my understanding of it is basically that uh, so you know how you can have like these I guess Aura enabled mm-hmm. uh, Apex classes mm-hmm. or methods really that your, your Salesforce co- components can, what are they called? Aura and what's the, what's the category for that includes Aura components and Lightning components? Uh, Lightning components. Lightning components. I guess. I guess. Okay.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but it's now. This has been delayed already. It was originally supposed to be like a forced. What do they call them? Security. Not security updates. What do they call them? Um, Critical update. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's Supposed to be in summer. and that. Then it got delayed and it keeps getting delayed because I think Salesforce realizes that it's going to screw up everyone's org if they if they turn this on. But they're going to. They're not. They're going to. You once they enable this, you will not your components will not be able to access those Aura-enabled methods unless the user has access to that
2: Apex class. Oh, I would, thought that was already the case. Maybe not. I do have a permission
1: set for for functional module areas, I don't know what to call them,
0: where I can add in permissions to those classes. And that's just when you go to a class and you you can say... Which profiles have access to the class, right? Right. Okay. Which is usually things that, (laughs) I mean, a lot of people don't even look at those because uh, if your triggers use classes, then, well, triggers operate in system mode anyway, so you don't have to worry about giving people access to classes that triggers use. Right. And then, as long as people have access to visual force pages, any classes that those visual force pages use, they also get access to. You don't have to give them access to those. Even the controller. Right. Which is kind of weird. But now, well, they ha- they get automatically access to the controller, but the
1: controller runs in the system context, which has access to all the other classes.
0: I don't think the controller does run in system context
1: on a Visual Force. No. Well, it runs server side, and so I think it just has access to everything. Okay, I'm not
0: sure how to uh, express I think that. You're going to get a fact check on that one, but that's fine. <laughs> oh my, I've been wrong before. But I mean, really, the only things y- you had to worry about access with Apex classes was um, like web ser- things that exposed as web services. Well, that and invocables. Invocables, yeah. Yeah. And I guess they enforce that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, Chris Peterson tweeted this. There's a, a scanner, I guess. They've got a GitHub repo for it. Um, but I guess this thing, it doesn't say what it does, but I'm assuming it scans for classes with aura enable methods that maybe you don't have any profiles a sat- attached to. I'm guessing that's what it does. Mm. So you can just see if you have that problem. That sounds like a handy tool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's why I wanted to mention it, just as a a PSA. Yeah, because I can see that being an issue. Yeah, because I, I think that's one of those things when they, Salesforce goes to enforce that critical update that all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of broken orgs. Yeah. <laughs> so read your... Uh, yeah, I guess you should read those critical updates. This ones, like I said, it's, it's old, though. Read and test everything, yeah. You know, obviously. Anyway. That's what I was looking for.
2: Oh, I learned
0: it from you, Dad. I learned it from watching you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh.
1: And you know it was easier to catch our attention back then because they they play those in between Saturday morning cartoons. Oh yeah, and yeah. every kid is glued. I mean, that's the only reason kids got up early on Saturdays. Now they don't because they got access to oh my god, twenty four hour cartoons or whatever. Yeah. But for me,
0: I got up early because I want to see those cartoons. Oh yeah, that was you knew that starting at about 7 or 8 in the morning that every kid was up yeah. so they can watch cartoons. Mm-hmm. Think, of, think of the people that are listening now that are young enough that they don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> <Isn't> that <laughs> that makes me sad. I know. Especially since, uh, well, you've already
1: turned older and I'm about to turn older.
0: What does that mean? Is that my birthday falls before yours in the year? Yeah. Okay. I mean, aren't we already? Aren't we all? We're the same I mean, age already,
1: except oh, for that period okay. of time, those few months where I haven't changed yet. I got you.
0: Um, well, let's, I know you have, you, you want to dig into this automation thing. So I do. Let's get okay. through some other stuff first then. And then we'll, that will, that'll be our primary topic of the day. Gotcha. So I don't know. You can, uh, did you have any other topics? You, any other thing you want to know?
1: No, no the news has been kind of light. I mean, it sounds like they got some new
0: customer feedback tech that they announced. Oh. I don't know what that is about. I saw that today. Actually, I put a note for us to look at that to see if that was something that would be useful for our practice. I don't even know what it is, but yeah, a feedback, uh, feedback management, I think is what they call them. Customer feedback management. Okay. Yeah. Is that just like a, some kind like a survey thing? Probably.
1: That's what it looks like. I haven't really dug into it other than a quick glance at, at the press release on the Salesforce side of things, but it looks like that and tools like dashboards and things to see all the responses
0: and track it. You can measure your NPS. What is NPS? A net promoter or no, is it NPS? Net promoter score. Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh. Well, that's a big thing that all the. Net Promoter Score. What is that, John? It's a management tool that can be used to gauge the loyalty of a firm's customer relationships. It serves as an alternate uh, alternative to traditional customer satisfaction research and is claimed to be correlated with revenue growth. So all the um, all the hot, you know, young companies with VCE money and all that—they always track their Net Promoter Score. It's one of those things. Would you be likely to recommend us? And so I think if you if you assign negative and positive values to the different scales of that, mm-hmm. uh, then when you average it all out, like, what's the net promoter score? Is it positive or negative? If, okay. it's, if it's positive, then overall people would be willing to promote you, I guess, is the idea. I mean, it, on the surface, it sounds valuable, but on practice, I don't, is it? I, I mean, tons of companies use that. I mean, you get that, you get that exact survey all the time on stuff.
1: I know, but does
0: it really mean anything? I don't know. I don't either. Is it just going into some data warehouse somewhere? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, don't even get me started on on people on surveys and how people, even large companies, and I'm talking about multi-billion dollar companies that we know very well and some that we may not, they do surveys so poorly. I mean, you can tell that, I mean, some companies do it really well. You, You you know, but you really need people who know how to design surveys and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's so much psychological that goes into them and you really have to know what you're doing. Or the problem is, if you don't, then you get all these survey results and you, you immediately draw these conclusions from them. And it's like, well, you didn't set the survey up right and the questions you asked were like extremely biased and your measurement and your score, your, um, you know, your scale or whatever, you know, the, the types of measures you were using were, you know, the way that you're looking at them is invalid and, but no, go ahead make all those decisions on how are you going to spend all this money based on that? You you almost need, I mean, you kind of need people who are like PhD level statistician and, and like, um, and or psychology and economics, but it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, you, you'd be, you'd blow your, cause I got, I kind of got into survey back a long time ago Mm -hmm. and read all these books and, you know, would always try to pick the brains of these PhDs, um, on, on these various topics and uh yeah there's just there's a lot there's a lot that goes into it and and people get misled by their survey their surveys and their survey results all the time because they they're not doing it right yeah i can see that i mean my favorite one is um you know when you i don't know go to have your car serviced or you buy a car or you or um you know you you i don't know you you buy a new appliance and the people that install you know they or you move. Uh-huh. This happened to me and when we, after we moved. You know, the, the moving company. They know, here's the survey. Um, and they tell you. You have to give us tens. If, it, if you don't give us tens, it just doesn't count. Right. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you just destroyed your survey. I mean, your survey results are meaningless. Well, and, it goes back to unless that. Unless you're just trying to... Prove a point, unless you're just trying to rig your JD Edwards and Associates survey results, or you're, or you're just trying to send a report to Gartner or Forrester or IDC showing how amazingly happy your customers are. If that's all you're trying to do, then yes, yeah, sure, go ahead and tell everyone. That like, is what
1: people. Are I know, to do. I know what it is. They're trying to take the the <laughs> best positive results and feed that into to the uh,
0: to the marketing machine and and promote it everywhere. But if you want true polling on like how how are we doing? Because we mm-hmm. actually want, we're not just trying to, you know, rig the system. We're trying to find out what we're doing right and what we're not doing right. If, if, if that's your goal, then yeah, you got to. Oh, I think maybe you to fix your survey. Both and, and the best of cases is
1: being done. You know, you have the, your, your internal analytics that's looking at the whole complete picture and you have your marketing department that's cherry picking the best story out of everything. Yeah. I mean, the,
0: and you, I mean I can, I've even seen where, you know, organizations have two different surveys. They're like, okay, you're going to get two surveys from us. Yeah. One of them we just need all tens. <laughs> Most like truck drivers, they have two books. <laughs> oh I bet. Yeah. Yeah. No, not a bit, I know. <laughs> Maybe certain tech companies too. Two sets Maybe. of books.
1: <laughs> no, I mean the drivers, because the drivers yeah. have certain regulations on how long they can drive and right. how far they can drive and you know they, they
2: have two books. Yep. Anyway. Um, how did we get onto that? Uh something about a survey.
1: You started it, <laughs> anyway. Um, the other thing, I, I oh, saw, I know it was oh, that feedback
0: thing—the customer feedback thing—Salesforce announced. Oh yeah, yeah. So I don't know what what that all is. I mean, it's just I think I I don't know, way for Salesforce to sell a survey product now. I guess I mean, they have
1: they've had that before though, right? They've had tooling for that, right?
0: I don't know. Actually, I, I so I looked at the press release, but I also just Googled Salesforce feedback management, and it was it was announced or what's the the work.com has a they've been thinking of field service cuz i think field service has like survey objects and stuff that were created for it i think you're right about that i could be wrong but i think you're right yeah but this is a new thing or a repackaged thing as something new it's hard to tell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway um okay so this is a this is a couple months old now um i saw you, apparently just hit my radar for whatever reason and it's 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 an old thing and a new thing and I actually saw this because a uh, friend of the show, Stefan Garcia, uh, I think he must have tweeted this or something. But anyway, it's, it's, he's got an uh, entry on the Salesforce Developers blog and the date is May 18th. But it's Introduction to Real-Time Event Monitoring. So this piggybacks on Salesforce event monitoring, which I actually I, I took this opportunity to go and read up on that a little bit because I, I think I kind of knew it was there. It's, it's, it's part of Shield. I think you can get it I think you can, if you don't want all of shield, cause shield's kind of expensive and there's a lot of downsides to it. Mm-hmm. So if you just want the event monitoring, I think you can buy that. Of course you have to buy it though, because this is Salesforce. You know? Right. <laughs> oh, you want to monitor your events? Oh, that's more money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so event monitoring is, is I'm trying to think of, let's uh, see some examples here. Cause he kind of runs through the base, what the existing base event monitoring was. So it's, it's, uh, it gives you a way to, you know, collect and analyze, you know, different types of events and, that happen in your Salesforce org. And each time, uh, so each time an action is initiated like a page view, like so someone accesses a record or a report is run, um, Salesforce logs an event for that, mm-hmm. which is super useful because I can't tell you over the past 20 years how many times I've had companies, they get really bent out of shape because they don't know when someone just reported out all their customer base or they don't know when people are looking at things they shouldn't be looking at. And, you know, they don't, they can't, they want to keep it to a public model because going to a private model has all kinds of downsides, but they still want to know what people are, you know, right. they still kind of want to check up on that. And so this, this allows you to do that because again, every time someone accesses a record or I think in the, in the, in the world of lightning now, so like every, every time like the URL or the, the, this, this push state changes or whatever kind of, Logs, like what that URL was and what the record they accessed and all that kind of... And I think even how long they were on it and even some performance characteristics, how long did it take it to load and whatever. That's pretty cool. Yep. Um, so that's, that's been there. Again, pretty useful. Uh, something to, to look at if you didn't know it was there or you hadn't really looked at it, just to kind of know that it's, it's an option. Again, because it does cost money, so it's not like everyone's going to run out and buy that. But I don't know. It, for some organizations, especially ones that are in certain industries... They need to be able to audit that kind of things. So yeah. A lot know. of them are buying the shield package and the event margin comes with it. Yeah. Wow. That's. I know. <laughs> You're like Rudolph over here. <laughs> I don't know how to drink it quietly. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just you got this compressor hitting hard. <laughs> <laughs> but the real time. So the real time part is new, I think. And uh, it is. And, and only certain things are available in the real time. Now, what's what sets the real time apart is, first of all, it's a subset of the event types. Mm hmm but also they they're accessible via instead of having to okay let me back up the normal event monitoring stuff i think you can download it but you can also access it via a rest api um, but there was no like real time streaming with with the real time events again it's only a subset of the events but you can subscribe to it you you know using the long polling thing like you, can't, oh, you, know, so plot, you can set up like a war room dashboard or something yeah i think it uses the streaming the same yeah. streaming api um, technology that salesforce mm-hmm. uses for platform events and uh, push topics and all those sorts uh-huh. of things. So that's kind of cool. Um, what is the subset? Let's see. Yeah, not, so not all real-time events can be subscribed to via triggers or declarative tools. So some of them, that's yeah, interesting. You, you can't do triggers for them. You, you just, you do have to, sub- I think you have to do the streaming thing. It's for streaming. I think they created this for streaming. Uh, Oh, here we go. Real-time event types. So there's five primary event types. Authentication. So it's like when people log in, log out. Data access, which is when someone accesses a report or list view. uh, And each action that takes place is fired as an event. API transactions are also sent. So that's good. So if someone does something with their credentials Mm -hmm. via the API, that, that counts too. That's really good. Page access. Uh, threat detection which is new in summer 20 and these uh, I guess there's a series of events that that take aggregated event log data and are fired when a oh interesting when a security vulnerability is detected so they're looking at like a series of of actions like a would you call that anyway it's like a behavioral um, heuristic maybe type maybe. of thing, where it's like you know the person did this this and then that and then that that now that, it's almost like um, your credit card companies are like, okay, he, he flew to New York, but then he hopped in a car in LA and 30 minutes later, hmm, that doesn't, you know, it's like right. when you piece these things together, that's what, you know, triggers some alarm. And then there are mobile security events. And this is a part of enhanced mobile security, which, by the way, extra money. <laughs> uh, so those are an additional subset of events related to mobile app usage. Oh, the mobile screenshot event. So if someone takes a screenshot. Really? Yeah, that's great. Oh, on mobile? Yeah. I so, guess mobile fires an event saying... Okay. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. So that's the thing. Streaming security events and just data access events. If you, uh, if you have that much of a need to spy on your users, then Salesforce is your guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes it's needed. I need, to put, I need to make sure that's in the show notes. Got it. Okay. Uh, my next thing. John, have you been following this GPT-3 news and everyone get, getting their panties in a bunch over this? No. What is it? Uh, okay. What is GPT-3? Okay. Start with that. I don't even know what it stands for. Uh, what does it stand for? Well, it's a program, and okay. it's, um, it's, a, it's a product of... This company called OpenAI, and they're one of these kind of a big name in the machine learning and AI space. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have so the original thing they had, you know, they had something this thing called GPT. Again, don't know what it stands for. Oh, generative pre-trained transformer. That's some kind of machine learning terms that I'm familiar with, but uh, couldn't tell you anything about really. I've heard those words before. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and then they did gpt2 and then gpt3 and gpt the original one i'm making numbers up now i wish i could find them let's see um okay gpt originally released in 2018 contained 117 million parameters it's kind of like how smart it is i guess Mm -hmm. or how big the model was maybe not sure GPT-2, released in 2019, contained 1.5 billion parameters, and GPT-3, which is this new one, has 175 billion parameters, which is more than 100 times its predecessor. But, uh, yeah, this is like an, I mean, I don't know if they're calling it AI. Well, and some people, some of these experts are saying it's definitely not AI or, or AGI, which is what? Artificial General Intelligence? Is that what that means? General Intelligence? I think it is. But some of these demos that people are doing, I mean, they're, they're really interesting. Uh, let me see if I can I add another link that had some. Yeah. So some, some person, Kevin Lacker gave it a Turing test and the Turing test is just to review. Uh, I think it was, I'm pretty sure Alan Turing created this, they're the idea, but it was like the way that you could test whether we have artificial intelligence or not is if you can have a conversation with the computer. And not be able to tell whether it's a computer or a person that you're conversing with. Mm. Anyway, so some of the stuff is pretty cool. I mean, you, you know, so you asked it, like, what is the life expectancy in the United States? And, you know, the answer human life expectancy is 78 years. And who was the president in this time? You know, what party did he belong to? So you can ask it these, like, follow-up questions and it keeps, you know, it's tracking. It's basically, you know, a million times better than Siri and Google and all these things. <laughs> But I mean they you know they're, they're gonna be incorporating this type of thing, so uh, and then it has got common sense of like what what's your so, you know if you, they asked it, what's your favorite animal? They said, My favorite animal is a dog. Why? And answers because dogs are loyal and friendly. I mean, just, mm. no, just, <laughs> um you know, how many how many eyes does a giraffe have? A giraffe has two eyes. How many legs does a frog have? A frog has four legs. Um But then you get to stuff like, Okay, which is heavier, a mouse or an elephant? It says, an elephant is heavier than a mouse. Okay, sure. And then, it's, and then it asks, what's, what's heavier? A toaster or a pencil? And it answers, a pencil is heavier than a toaster. No, that's not correct. Um, and, then, and then it gets more interesting. How many eyes does a giraffe have? A giraffe has two eyes. Okay, correct. How many eyes does my foot have? Your foot has two eyes, is the answer. <laughs> Um, how many eyes does the sun have the sun has one eye I mean that's kind of true If you think of it, the sun as a big eye Staring at you does it how many eyes does a blade Of grass have a blade of grass has one eye And then It's so that's I think that's where this These AI things get tripped up is they They don't know what's a um, Like what's a, a valid or a ridiculous Question that just has no It doesn't know that it's not a valid Question so how do you sporgle a Morgul and then it says you Sporgle a Morgul by using a Sporgle. <laughs> <laughs> how many bonks are in a co- coit? I don't know how to say that. There are three bonks in a coit. Okay. How many rainbows does it take to jump from Hawaii to 17? It takes two rainbows to jump from Hawaii to 17. I mean, just... Oh, someone needs to ask it how many licks it takes to get to the center of a roll. <laughs> well, we know that. pop. It's three, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, it's, it's good at answering, like, trivial questions about obscure things, right? I mean, that's, and, and they trained it on, first of all, in the, like, the corpus of material they trained on, it was, it was, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling. And I, I wish, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, so one of the things they trained it on was the entirety of Wikipedia. Okay. And that was, like, not even a half a percent of the material they fed it. Wow. Yeah. Um, they used like you know that Google has that massive book scanning project they've been working on for like mm-hmm. twenty years. So they basically, I think they sent it to all those books. Wow. Y- here's some interesting things. When counting, what number becomes or what number comes before one hundred? And then it answers, ninety nine comes before one hundred. What uh, what number what number comes before one hundred twenty three? And it says. 122, but comes before 123. But then it starts messing up. What number becomes uh, comes before 10,000? And then it says, 9,099 comes before 10,000. Well, that's not true. It's 9,999. Right. And then I ask, well, what number comes before a million? And it says 900,099 comes before a million. Mm-hmm. That's not right either. Right. So it's, it's weird because it's, and, and it even, it knows, I mean, I think they fed it a bunch of source code, like computer code and stuff programming. And I think they put it in, I don't know, like, it looks, looks like Ruby. But, you know, it says, oh yeah, it says, write one line of Ruby code to reverse an array. It gives you the code. I mean, it does some pretty cool stuff, but then it screws up on stuff. It's like, and it, it asked it just, to re- it gave it an array, and it said, reverse that array, and it couldn't reverse the array. It could write the code to reverse it. Hmm. But it couldn't reverse it. It, it didn't, it just didn't like, fully understand it. Uh, let's see. Is it because well,
2: yeah. And
0: I you know and I I um I saw some thing some things where they uh they had fed it in like just some like two digit arithmetic like 27 plus 54. They can give you the answer. And what's weird is apparently these AIs they don't they don't have calculators. They're doing it by logic, like by what they they've seen those numbers added before. Mm-hmm. And so they can recall that. But this but this thing started failing when you'd give it a three digit number. So it would just give you the wrong answer. So it's not <laughs> And the other weird thing is, you know, when it's, w- well, what people are doing with it is they're using it, um, I think that the headline here was that you can give it a topic to write about or even feed it like, hey, look at this website or this Wikipedia article, and then write a three-paragraph text about it, and it just can totally generate, like, good-sounding. Crap. Yeah, it's crazy. As if journalism wasn't already in trouble. Well, I, I already see... Artificial generated articles all the time. It's, and you really see it in like uh financial based stuff
2: mm-hmm.
0: because, and those aren't really, I don't think they're AI. They're more like templates because there's so much data available about stocks and you can just have like kind of conditional logic. Like, okay, if the stock's been up over the last six months, then say this, if it's been down, say this, if it's beat the S and P 500, then say, you know, you can tell it's just kind of template driven, but yeah, this is, I mean, I think this, and some of the writing, I'm like, this, this sounds better than, you know, most people could write. I mean, it's very well written, but on longer things, if you tell it to like, Hey, write a nine paragraph, like the last two paragraphs really start falling off. Mm. Like it's not, it doesn't tie, it doesn't tie the whole thing together and it kind of just starts drifting. <laughs> so that's where the human comes in. And it's also, they, they, um, you c- it can write a UI. You can say, you can describe a UI that you want it to write and it will code out the UI. I think it knows like, um, react and some other stuff. Hmm. But you know, the more complicated things you want it to do, it 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 starts falling off and it, it starts, you know, starts writing like in, invalid code with invalid syntax and and, it, and the other thing that's weird about AI is, you know, it doesn't there's no morals to it. It doesn't under it doesn't have an opinion on anything. So it it just can't make judgments. Hmm. And I, and that's one of those things like you know, I don't know if it things ever it, yeah, will they ever be able to? And also like let's say let's say it gets really good at coding. And, and also let's say it gets really good at math and all kinds of other things. And the weird thing about AI is like we don't know we don't know how it comes up with the answers it comes up with. We don't we don't just don't really understand that. Like we don't understand what reasoning path it took. And the and the truth is I think because it doesn't take a reasoning path. It's just fed a massive massive input mm-hmm. to train it. And then so it puts all the you know, it has billions of these parameters or whatever. So just Lego builds it. And the, and the question is, like, does it, you know, i I'd read this interesting discussion, like, you know, th- just philosophically, like, if it can get the right answer, but it doesn't understand why, or why it's the right answer, and we don't know how it got that answer, does, it, does that even matter? Isn't that what we would call a feeling, or a gut feeling? Uh, yeah, I guess, but I, I feel like, you know, human gut feelings are, they're informed by, like, all of our history, and our morals, and societal norms, and things, and AI doesn't have those, I mean, it knows about them, if it's read about them. If that's been fed into it, but yeah, that's there's no really there's no real opinion there, and so you know the the other problem, this kind of famous problem with AI is, you know, it's a reflection of everything you put into it. So it might write racist things, or uh, that I mean that's the most common example, racism. You know, mm-hmm. everything's racist, so it's gonna be it's gonna be racist. AI is gonna be racist, but I mean it's just gonna reflect what you put into it. That's what it thinks is truth. This has been all over the news. So you've totally had your head buried in the sand for the past two weeks. This has been all over Twitter. So many. I mean, (laughs) I've heard this talked about on podcasts, and I've read tons of articles. Well, I've kind of been behind on podcasts,
1: although I have been listening again, only to a select few. And uh, I've been avoiding the news, 100% been avoiding the news. In fact, the only reason I know anything about certain current events is either because I know someone that's been affected by it, like the hurricanes. Mm. or my dad called me up and said, Hey, did you hear about this huge explosion out in Lebanon or whatever?
0: Had you heard of it? I hadn't until <laughs> you told me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And I think I, I heard about it probably within five minutes of it happening via yeah. Twitter. You know, are people texting me? Did you see this just happened? Yeah. Like, I am gonna have to keep you informed anytime like really important stuff happens. I'm just yeah. To if it's really you.
1: important, let me know. Cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to avoid the world right now.
0: The world is not a happy place for some reason. Oh, it's interesting. Another thing, I'm reading another article here. Um, the GPT three. They it, they asked it to generate guitar tab for like a fictional song and artist, and it generates an actual. I'm looking at it now. This is like valid guitar tab for a song it made up. It, it knows wrote. music theory and everything.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just. Yeah, crazy. It's really good at, like, medical questions.
0: The program not only gave the right answer, but correctly explained the underlying biological mechanism. Well, that'll save me some time at the doctor. It makes me sit there and wait. <laughs> you can also... It, it knows how to write things in different types of language. So, like, if you give it, like, my landlord didn't... uh maintain the property. Or you it, it can change it if you want plain language versus legal. So plain language, it said, my landlord didn't maintain the property. And when they said, state that in legal language, it said, the defendants have permitted the real property to fall into disrepair and have failed to comply with state and local health and safety codes and regulations. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, the writing code. That's pretty crazy. With GPT three, I built a layout generator where you just describe any layout you want, and it generates the JSX code for you,
2: which is uh, a uh, React thing. I mean, maybe we'll actually get decent chatbots now. Maybe.
0: <laughs> anyway, that's just been in the news. So I'm. This is that's what this show is. This is keeping John current.
2: Yeah, because I'm a loser who doesn't keep up. <laughs>
0: As um, so I've been doing um, some an- Einstein Analytics trails, I'm about to do some some myself because I've been asked a few things, um,
1: which is nice because I y- y- you never know if one of those technologies is going to be something that people are actually using or if it's going to be just an edge case where like a one percent of their clients are using it. So it's kind of nice to
0: to hear interest in some of these, so I can gain some experience. Well, let me ask you this: Are you seeing? Do you generally see lots of use of Einstein Analytics?
1: I don't know. I'm only just getting requests for it. It's, it's kind of like, like wave kind of burnt me because I went gung ho and I'd learned as much as I could about it. I, I remember that. I had, yeah. I had like previews of it and I was, I was spending hours just playing with it and trying to figure things out and figure out what worked and what didn't work and all that kind of stuff. And for years, no one asked me for professionally for a project. No one asked me anything about implementing it. I would get questions like maybe on pre-sale calls and things like that about it. But it never materialized into real projects. So it just, it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, well, maybe I should just wait till someone's asking me before I start investing a ton of time into it.
0: Well, the problem when, okay, when you were learning it, and that was what, a couple, two or three years ago? Five years ago? I don't know. I have no sense of time. But that's back when they really didn't want anyone using it. And so they charged, you know, like a, I don't know, was it like a 50 50 grand, like entry fee or something like that? Just like an initialization or a a initiation fee? Yeah. (laughs) I
1: mean, it crept up in places like um, so whenever you got shield and a lot of those tools that we're talking about, like the monitoring, all that kind of stuff, it plugged into into wave or to analytics or whatever you want to call it. And even like some of the sales cloud dashboards and things like that, which is weird because the way they had to structure those. um, The usage of that was you kind of had to just promise. And I think it's like in the licensing terms and stuff that you're only going to use wave for your monitoring tools (laughs) because they basically just had to give you licenses to analytics to, to view all the dashboards and everything that were created for it. So you can wire everything up. Yeah. Um, But it technically was
0: the platform and they really had no other way of restricting it. So, well, so, so far, and I'm just still kind of dipping my toes here, but, um, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive overall. I would say they've really, uh, it's a good application of D3.js, I would say. <laughs> it's it's some good, it, you, some some good animations.
1: animations. I, I, hate, I hate that little drawing of the thing to create all the nodes for the path of the data and how to access it. I really hate that. I don't know why you hate that. Because it's really confusing, and if you want to make a change and decouple something from the other, you lose parameter, input parameters or something like that. Yeah. It, it, it burnt me a few times where I just had to like go back to a revision.
0: I mean, I will say... Um, in fact, fact, the more I'm learning about onset analytics, the more I realize that, because I'm trying to figure out, okay, like the, you know, what type of person do you need? What type of skill do you need to really build out like decently advanced onset analytics stuff? And it turns out it's, it's a pretty technical, I think a pretty technical type of person. That's promising. It sounds like fun and challenging kind of. It no, it is. it's fun, kind of challenging. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely um people. I mean, there's definitely like math skill sets and even like uh, like theoretical type things that um you just need to know and like concepts of like pipes and filters and just mm-hmm. I mean all this. You know, if you don't, I don't know. If you don't know those, then I think this would be more challenging. And and I find that when I because you know Einstein Analytics, it has all its. I think there's some industry standard terms, but I also think they took <laughs> they they took some some some. Uh, I don't know what's it called license, creative license Mm -hmm. on naming some of these things. So it's, you know, there's all these names for things. And as soon as I find out what they really are, and I, then I tell them, uh, I'm like, okay, that's like this pattern or that's this kind of flow or whatever. Then um, I can wrap my head around it a little bit better. But if I, if I didn't know those concepts, if I hadn't studied those types of things before at some point, then I think it would be, I think it's a much more uphill. It's a steeper, it'd be a steeper
1: learning curve. It is and it was because that wasn't my world either. I mean, I had a base understanding of some of it, but it there wasn't anything that I had too much experience in. So understanding the idea of a lens and the data sources and, and all the piping and all the filtering and what part of the layer that was in before and how the data was thus generated Yep. or cached or whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, and then understanding that whole mechanism was kind of new to me, but um, I've I lived in a world of databases and built tons of databases, so I felt somewhat comfortable with it in terms of that and understanding the relationships and how to link things together and normalize and denormalize the data to get what I needed. Yeah. Because it really was that. It was, it, was, it was flattening out the data model in a way so that you could do something with it after the fact. So you have all these disparate pieces of information and they may or may not have clear connections between them. Sometimes it, it takes a, a some kind of fuzzy match. Sometimes you have a direct match, uh, an exact match, and things like that. But the goal of it was to all kind of pipe that data in and flatten it out as much as possible so that you could then push
0: that to some chart or some dashboard or something. Yeah, and unlike with, you know, built-in Salesforce, I guess with the reports and dashboards, and in and Ninesight Analytics, it lo- I haven't tried this yet, but it looks like you can do basically arbitrary joins. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Salesforce, it has to be based on just, you know, Salesforce relationships. Right. But I mean, you could, in Einstein Analytics, or I guess, sorry, I guess, it, I think it's just, I think it's slowly becoming re- rebranded. I don't know if you've noticed this. So just analytics. No, and in, in, fact, analytics? in fact, when you go to the Einstein Analytics web page on Salesforce's website, it's got the Tableau logo, but it's just called analytics. But if they're referring to Tableau specifically, then they will actually say Tableau. Otherwise, it's just analytics mm. or analytics cloud. That's not confusing. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Uh, What was I saying though? Oh yeah. You could, I mean, it looks like you could, you could join like a, an account against, you know, accounts against opportunities based on, um, you know, account billing city on a custom an opportunity called city. You know, that doesn't have to be based on the Salesforce defined relationships. Right. But, um, anyway, um, so, so yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, but I, there are and i think this is more on the builder side because of things not just the consuming side of things for analytics there's just a lot of ui issues and i don't know if like is this just an, is this a lightning problem because <laughs> i've noticed you know originally like especially when you look at the, like the demos and all the original lightning stuff it was all it was all pixel perfect they really and that whoever that team and i've, I've even read stories about them that's kind of been written up in like I don't know, like Smashing Magazine or I don't know. So they've been, some of these people have been to like, they've kind of keynoted some CSS conferences and stuff and uh, to t- tell that story about developing the lightning the design. System. Yeah, I guess so. But then, you know, you you give it, you hand it to all the different teams across Salesforce. They're building, you know, myriad of products and they kind of go, go their own direction with it. Mm-hmm. And they just, you know, they're gonna they're gonna explore the white space and, ter- and i want to be in my white space it's like the spaces where you didn't specifically specify how things should be used how they should be done and you know and then you get different teams doing different things or just things not being done right um i mean the worst one i saw was i actually slacked about this because i could not figure some, someone helped me um i couldn't figure out what to do there was a di it was a dialogue where i think i was creating a data set or something and there was just one Text. It was a, di- a modal dialog popped up in one text box. So you have to enter the name, and I could see the label for the text box. It was a. It looks like it looks like the there was the label, and then the text box is probably under it. Mm-hmm. But it was the text box itself was just not there. And I finally f- figured out. Someone said, "Okay, try clicking on the on the dialog, and then hitting." Because I tried tabbing all around, and I couldn't tab into it. I said, "Click on the dialog and then hit tab once." And sure enough, when I did that, like this little small little window scrolled up and there was the the browser scrolled the text box into view oh wow yeah i didn't show you that you didn't see that you showed me that you okay. showed me the fix i didn't see how it came yeah. came to be i'm just like how i mean this is 100 broken if this is and this i'm in a production org i guess i mean if it's an in, na in 157 or something like that one of those yeah um and it's you Unless you know how to get around that, you can't create data sets or I, I think it was data. It might have been something else, recipe. I don't remember. But um, and then, so that was that was the worst. I mean, that was the only one that was truly broken. But a lot of it just, just again, it's just a sloppiness. You see, it reminds you of like any setup thing in Salesforce. Well, it's inconsistent, and it's not. Yeah,
1: and I mean, we know it's going to take time for them to kind of get everything into the new design and into the new
0: format. But it's, like, like uh, here's another example. And this is not broken. It just, to me, is inconsistent. Um, one dialogue that, you know, captures the name of something you're creating might be like, you know, they take up a third of the screen. Mm-hmm. And then an, another type of thing you might create that it just needs the name of, the dialogue might take up 90%. It's just, you get this super wide dialogue. It's like 90% of, the, of your screen. Yeah. I'm like, why is this dialogue so wide? I'm just giving it a name for a data set or whatever it was.
2: Yeah.
0: And furthermore, why is it different than the other dialogues that just collect a name?
1: Yeah, I would be really curious to understand... What the internals of Salesforce is like when it comes to the design system and to the design team? Because you're right, when when they were implementing or designing the design system, it seemed like they had a lot more governance. They had they had they had a lot more power behind them to kind of dictate. You know this this is how you do things. This is the way we're moving forward. They have the whole site designed around it, and that site should be used for both internal and external. There there actually are. Um, I'm going to call them tokens because that's what Salesforce calls them, but there are tokens. In the design system, that are some of them are generally available, which means ones that we can use, and there's some that are internally available, meaning they're ones that Salesforce uses, but they're not meant to be consumed externally. So they're not available
2: Hmm.
1: um, to the whatever public style sheet that we're using for Lightning. Yeah. So there is that concept and there is that mechanism there for internal only kind of CSS styling and the public one. But the whole idea, my impression, was that the design system was going to unify everything across all the products. But that doesn't seem to have come to fruition. I don't think so. And yeah. even, even when it first, a few months or years after it came out, there was little differences I was noticing in the UI, which really bugged me because I like things to look, when I design something, I want to look the way Salesforce does it. Yep. Because so I don't want users to, to, not that I don't want them to know, but I want them to feel a very consistent UI, even with the custom stuff I built. Yeah,
0: they shouldn't be able to tell this didn't come
1: from Salesforce.
0: Right. right? Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. That's, that's a noble goal. Yeah.
1: But it seems like lately, especially in this last release, a lot of UI elements seem to be quirky. So I don't know if it's a global thing with the design system itself that somehow got broken or something internal that's going on.
0: I mean, have you been dealing with losing your icons at all? Well, okay. That's funny you say that. I did. I don't know if this is what you're talking about. The other day I logged into an org and like how. All the icons along the top, like to get in set up and all mm-hmm. those things, those were all gone. Yeah. What was that? What is that? It's just a bug. Okay.
1: It happens. But I refreshed you, and they I were refresh there. Refresh and they come back. Yeah. Okay.
0: Hmm. I, I have a
1: chart that's using Chart.js and when it it draws, fine most of the time, but every so often you go to the page and the chart does not show up.
2: Hmm.
1: So I don't know if this is a browser thing or some or what it is, or if it's a Salesforce impacting my chart, because this is inside of a lightning component. Um, I'm not sure which one is which but knowing that icons are disappearing I wonder if it has something to do with the canvas that they're all drawing <laughs> some kind of because I think they're all vector based or all SVG so yeah.
0: yeah I don't I mean it's, it's back to the you know different different You know, <laughs> I, I guess you, I don't know how you describe it but it's just like different you know you're, you're seeing d- uh, differences amongst different teams or different products in Salesforce in the UI um a lot of that's just drift, especially with companies as big as Salesforce. I mean, it's, you know, how many, how many different teams and how many different developers and UI designers and, and that Salesforce has? I mean, tons. And they're, I mean, before COVID, they were spread all over the place, probably. uh I mean, you know, they have a one of the, one of their big, I can't remember which product is, is up in Seattle or Portland somewhere. And, but now, of course, with COVID, like, you know, no one's even coming into the office. or so it's talk about being spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people also have just let their leases go and they've moved back to whatever part of the country they were from because it's way cheaper. And if I don't have to go into the office to maintain this job I have at Salesforce, then why would I live there where it's super expensive and I live in a little dump? <clears throat> so, yeah, people are all spread out and, and it's just natural. I think natural drift from the what do they them? like the style guide? Yeah, but that's what the design system was supposed to prevent. I mean, you
1: started out with style sure, guides way sure. back when, right. and that was easy to drift. But the whole idea of the design system was that it was the thing you were using. Yeah. You know, it, it was maintained, and you
0: use those classes. You use those class names. But, I mean, uh, is it is it that the design system isn't being followed, or the design system just doesn't cover areas that it needs, that it ideally should cover? I wonder that, too, but I don't see that. I mean, I don't see any kind of...
1: Whizbang new UI that they're coming up with that couldn't be d- couldn't be accomplished using the design system.
0: I mean, let me ask you this: so the, the example I gave, where you have two different dialogues that are essentially doing the same thing, capturing the name of something, mm-hmm. and one of them is thirty percent of the screen, one of them's ninety percent of the screen. I mean, does the, does the design system tell you how wide your dialog should be? I don't think it does. It does. The d- really, the
1: design system has um, general. It doesn't tell you how wide it needs to be because it's responsive. So it, it's responsive per screen. So you can say, I want a wide dialogue or I want a either normal or narrow dialogue. There's two different two different options on that. And so this, the design system is supposed to handle that for you. You just tell it whether or not you need a wide dialogue or a small
0: dialogue. Well, my, I mean, maybe that's what they did. You know, one of these dialogues, they said wide and the other one, they said big. Yeah, And, and it's, it's, you know, it, it could be as simple as that. It's, yeah, it's not. So it's in that case, it's it wouldn't be the design system that's that's inadequate. It's just you know, arguably a, a questionable choice of, I mean, if you're just going to collect the name of something that's on average going to be 15 characters, why do you have a dialogue that will fit, you know, 700 characters?
1: That's true. But when it comes to, it's exaggerating. the design, like I mean,
0: that's what your QA department's for. That's what, I
1: agree. that's what no, they're there for to go, Hey, you designed this great new screen. I'm bouncing against the design system and it's not looking like compliant here.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that shouldn't have passed QA right. essentially. And, and. You might not have technically broken any design system rules, but just like, you know, why is that dialogue so wide? Right. You're just asking for a name of something. Right. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you could put half of War and Peace into this dialogue. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Let's All see. Right. Let me open this beer. So, yeah, you're this? getting way behind. So, this is uh, just the, uh, a logger from Community Brewing, and they're here in Dallas. You've been there before? That's a good one to visit if you haven't. Uh, it's right off of 35. Are they in that, like, off of Carrollton um no it's oh, <laughs> God, John. now they're, they're further south They're they're right across from oh, God, you don't have how to pour family. a beer I don't I, well I'm that. trying like not to foam. move stuff now yeah, there goes all your carbonation jeez well I need a nap. look at that I was prepared. Um, now it's, it's you know where the, like the info mart it's, it's in the design district down there so it's like right across the 35 from kind of the info mart area down there it's in Dallas okay no I haven't been there but so this is their Hellas lager. And what I want you to, and I, I like this. I buy this at the store all the time. It's a, just a good summer. 50 head. Yeah, it's just a, a Hellas lager. It's you know, probably 4.5%. But I have recently fallen in love with this brewery down in Fredericksburg, which uh, is west of Austin in the hill country of Texas called Altstadt. Altschott. Alt <laughs> Altschott. I can't, that's my is best it like a German, German word. Yeah, 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 A-L-T-S-T-A-D-T. I don't know what that means. Old old city, old town? I have no idea what that means. I think it's something like that. Anyway, um, they are a, as you could guess, German-oriented brewery. In fact, that's all they make is German styles. But um, they're almost, and they, here's the thing, John. They do a fantastic job. And they are so dedicated to the authenticity of their beers it's ridiculous they're what i we would love franconia to be here in town
2: mm.
0: and so i brought their hellas lager so what's the experiment that i'm doing here well you're going to drink this one from community which i think is a good beer okay. but then we're, we're going to drink the Altstadt, which i think is just a remarkable hellas lager which you know what i and i've been wondering like because i mean I, I love these traditional styles because most of the time when, when we drink beer up here, it's it's you know it's whatever the crazy hazy IPA that someone put half a gallon of, you know, fruit juice in mm-hmm. or um, grape soda stuff. Yeah, <laughs> as you would say, pastry styles, all kinds of crazy stuff. But i mean, I, I Also, I just love the. I mean, I love lagers. I love um, porters, and I mean like you know five percent porters, not these crazy things. Um, you know, I love uh, like the English you know, like milds and bitters and. Uh, some of the you know original Belgian stuff. I mean, I do might know. have a shorter list if you talk about what you don't like. I, there's just a very short list, I think. <laughs> I even like smoked beer, rock rock beer, smoked beer. Yeah, smoked beer. It's, so it's you know because here's here's a fun fact. Originally, pretty much all beers were smoked beers because the kilning technology they had to to kiln the malt was just um, d- direct fire. Kilns, so like whatever. If you're using wood or peat or whatever it was for the heat, you know it, that's what this, That's what the malt's going to taste like.
2: Mm. Okay.
0: <laughs> yep. And it wasn't until, actually, an Austrian and a German, I guess, went to England, because uh, and and hung out with some maltsters in England and found out they were doing indirect fire and they were using coke. I guess you know the like the coal product or whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a very low smoke methods. And they took that back. In fact, one of them ended up in uh, in, what would have been at the time? Czechoslovakia? No, that's before Czechoslovakia. Oh, what was it back then? I guess um, Moravia? Maybe Moravia? I don't know. This is where my (laughs) my history and geography starts to fail me. (laughs) Whatever, now it's the Czech Republic. I don't know what it's called. But anyway, in Pilsen, and created probably the most popular beer style of all time, the Pilsner. Uh, Because the English figured out how to malt in, indirectly without smoke and also how to malt very lightly or kiln lightly so that you could get lighter colored because before they figured that out i mean all beers were smoky and they were dark But well, now i want a smoky beer i mean you know what go ahead and get you, who makes the. someone makes oh is it it's alaskan go ahead and get the alaskan smoked porter i think it's alaskan mm. you can get it in the grocery store <clears throat> It's been around for, I don't know, like 15 or 20 years. It's just, you know, it's one of those beers that was, at one time, kind of a darling of the craft, craft beer. I mean, it's kind of like a rite of passage. You had to, you had to drink that beer um, if you were like an, I would say, an early 2000s craft beer, you know, enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And now it's something that, you know, it's long forgotten, but still just really great beer. Yeah, I'll And a lot, a, lot of, a lot of porters and stouts are going to have a small percentage of, if not smoked, at least, you know, darkly, you know, roasted malts. Yeah, I mean, I think smoke is a critical component of several styles of beer. Anyway, the experiment here is, is and by the way, I'm sure we've lost half of our listeners, but that's okay, because that's this, just this kind of episode. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a show for us. <laughs> yeah, right? it is for us. No, I want you to, yeah, you got to drink this, and then we're going to compare the Altstadt. Well, I'm only drinking half that can then, so I can drink the other one. And we have to get your, we have to get to your story. We do. So I guess I'm done with mine. I'll let you, so we don't run out of time here. And run out of bladder space. It's too late. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you want to take a break?
1: No, no, I'm fine. I'm, okay. just, I'm just saying. I, I can tell already because you're about to put another beer on me. It's the beer.
0: Give me a spirit or a whiskey. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, okay. Makes sense. There's more water in beer. Mm-mm. I guess. That's why I consider beer a health drink. It's got so much water in it. <laughs> <laughs> Hydrates you. Dehydrates you. That you get to go so much. Yep. And then you have to drink more beer to hydrate yourself. Oh, the endless <laughs> cycle. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about automation. I mean, <sighs> <clears throat> I have to take that deep breath. Yeah, you have to prepare yourself. <laughs> I have to prepare myself for this conversation. <laughs> I, think, I think you and I, our viewpoints are pretty similar in, in the automation space in terms of, you know, the tooling that Salesforce provides, the, the best way to use them or not use them. Um, so I have some, some things to talk about that. Uh, in our Slack, someone shared a really great article. It's called The Architect's Guide to Building Record-Triggered Automation on Salesforce Using Clicks and Code. It's an architect document. Uh, and it, it does a really good analysis of the tooling that's available. Um, this is a Salesforce document, to the best of my understanding, or at least produced by Salesforce with crowdsourcing contributions or whatever. Okay. Contributions from the community. Um, it does a good, a good analysis on... This is, this is, I thought this was funny of low code versus pro code. <laughs> pro code. Is that? Like, okay. <laughs> Someone got cute with it. I think wanted to rhyme low code pro code. Yeah. I don't know. There's some new terminology to toss in the mix here. I'm a pro coder. You're a low coder and I'm a pro coder. <laughs> um, but uh, I did want to start out with my story about some automation that I'm kind of refactoring right now, um, which it's, it's this isn't a matter of of a blame game. It's just a matter of the progression. You know, you start out with an idea of automation and you're using Salesforce tools, in this case, Process Builder, and the requirements continue to grow um, or you just keep adding to things that exist, you know, new automations and things that come up. And you try to funnel it into the same flows that you have existing, or you try to tack them onto the existing flows. So I think the progression to the best of my ability was that there's an, we have an opportunity, and some automation needed to occur on the opportunity. And everything existed in a single process builder process. I don't know what else to call it. <laughs>
0: that's a process builder process. Process builder yeah, that's process.
1: Easy to say. <laughs> but then the amount of automation around that object started to grow, so the decision was made to split it out. So that you had a single uh, triggered process that would then, based on whatever step in the flow it was in, would trigger invocable processes. So now we have a process builder process that invokes several other processes. Uh, the pro- now, why, now, why did we go to invocable? Because uh, the logic was getting there was too much, too many logic steps. You, you needed some pro code. You really needed some pro
0: code, but the. The, the decision at the time was to stick with the tooling. But, to but the isn't working, the right? invocable object, isn't that pro code? You're invoking pro code, right? No, you're mixing terminology only, but yes. Okay. okay. Uh, so you can, with a process,
1: I don't want to say process builder. Just say pro. <laughs> oh, I want to say process. Okay. Right? okay. Everyone knows what I'm saying when I say right. process. Um, when you, With a process, you can have a process invoke another process. So you can have two process builder processes. Um, one that that actually gets triggered when a record is updated or created or whichever whatever trigger mechanism, and another that that is standalone that does not get triggered. It's called an invocable process, and there the intent of those is they'll get called by another process. And that was in that was invented so that when you do have these really large um, flows, I guess, mm-hmm. of logic that you need to account for, that you be able to break it up and be able to make sense of it and maintain it at, at a modular level. The problem is context um, between the two, you kind of lose the context of what is already being done, what is updating, and you're kind of in isolation. And so it's really easy for one to go rogue and to break a lot of things because it's doing massive same
0: record updates because it doesn't necessarily know what its context is, right. or it might assume that it's it is the context, right. yeah, okay. And to continue the story,
1: so that's that's the. The framework, then what happened is there were things that the process could not accomplish. There was just activities that were more complex. So that got moved into a flow and from a process builder process, you can invoke a flow. So now you have a process builder, a triggered process builder process invoking a process builder invokable process invoking a flow. So now you've got this three-tiered mechanism of things happening in automation. Most of them are doing same object updates, meaning they're all trying to update the same opportunity record, um, including the flow. And the problem is that's causing recursive updates. Okay. So the opportunity is getting updated like three, four
0: times. What's the stop condition that stops it from being updated? Or is it, is it not truly like, what's the word, uh, recursive or iterative?
1: So originally a lot of them were set up to be recursive. Okay. So meaning an update would happen, it would call itself again and try to run the logic and see if there's anything that it needed, that changed that it needed to rerun for. Mm-hmm. That quickly turned into an issue. So those were turned off. So with a process builder, you can tell it, don't recursive, Fire once only. Flow is only fire once, but if they're in your process, you're invoking them multiple times. So it was firing multiple times as well. And so, all of this is contributing to the CPU usage, um, query limits usage, and all of that. And not to mention, just uh, any automation on an opportunity tends to be slower in general, because there's a lot of magic around that object. And then you pile all this on. And then errors happen. And depending on where the error happened, you may get an error message, or you may get a GEC. And the, the, pro- the problem usually ends up being a null reference somewhere. 90% of the time, it's a null
0: reference. Hmm. 90%, you think? I think 90%. It, in, the, in the process the process has a null reference? Yes. Okay.
1: And there's a few reasons for that, I think, and I can get into that later, but that's the landscape of what we're dealing with. What, what, I, what I came into that I'm now trying to replace with code. Not everything will get replaced. There are a few things that will remain as a process just because they're uh, the opportunity assignment, for for instance. I'm probably gonna leave his code because there's so much that's happening on that. So whenever it decides, there's a whole decision tree on how it decides who gets ownership of it. And then following that, there's a number of emails and tasks and things that happen after that. So I'm gonna to try to avoid digging into the, or opening that can of worms. And I'm gonna to stick to the stuff that I know I can improve. Um, and a lot of it is, is that same object updates is getting rid of those, putting them in a trigger before context so that I can modify the record in flight and make sure that everything is set up before anything else happens, which is going to improve the stability of it 100% because what's happening is that a lot of these steps are dependent on the prior step updating something. So it might, the step one might update a field and call it A, and step two might need to look at at field A and say, oh, is field A X or is it Y? If so, then I'm going to do my thing. Well, because these were updating, it was updating, and it was not seeing that change because it was updating in a separate context, yeah. and so it was doing the wrong thing. And so either we had to run it multiple times or change its context on how it was running and things like that. I did try some surgical changes to try to move some things into the new before flow context, but that only solved a minor aspect of it. There was this whole chain that had to get redone, and so that ended up going towards the code route a lot. Yeah. It was very draining trying to understand that mechanism and trying to understand what I could and could not rebuild. But as I was rebuilding it, I was realizing some of the problems that, that, are, that exist in process and in flow. And that is the expressiveness of Apex and in log- in the logic path that you can take in terms of when you set something and the dependencies you create on that, rely on safe access to the data. There's a, lot of ob- there's a lot of lookups on that opportunity that have to be there. So when, we're, when I said we were getting a lot of null errors, it was because for some reason or another, one or many of those lookups were not populated. And the process, unlike workflow, mm-hmm. throws a null error. And flows do as well. Whereas workflow, which I think trained most people using process builder yeah. processes and flows, did not. It kind of just gracefully failed. It would see a null and just it's empty. It would never throw an error. It just would not go down that path. But with process and flow, it does. And so that's where we start seeing some of those errors. And that's where I have to go, okay, well, I, I would see it a lot when I was testing. When I was writing a unit test. i was like, okay, well, what field am I missing that I need to populate? Yep. And I think you were seeing it on integrations. <laughs> Because there was some new required field or some new logic that got implemented that required a certain field
0: to be populated, and I and I just I mean I'm stuck, and I'm working on like these expensive integrations, and I just get stuck dead in my tracks, and and it's not just once, it's you know now and then it's you know next week something else happens, but same error message, which is to say a useless error message, error message, but someone that knows how to disentangle all this thing has to go figure out, or I just have to start, you know, maybe I just start. Process of elimination. I just when I look at like every field of the opportunity and the account related and the contact related, and just start messing around trying to figure out like what it is. What is this thing looking for? What am I doing wrong? Right. And you might have little chance of doing that without digging into the
1: processes or the flows. The problem with that is the tooling is not meant for productivity. It, it really isn't. If you were to tell me, okay, I'm well, having a problem getting a null error on when an opportunity gets saved and most of our automation is in code i can go into the code and i can read it pretty quickly i can see all the all the assignments and everything and i can see all the variables and the declarations and the path it's taking you can do that with process and flow but you're having to drill into the process the right version drill into that ui which all of this is taking multiple seconds to even load onto the screen then i have to drill into each node also taking multiple seconds then drill into the actions also taking multiple sections seconds and so you multiply that and just being able to read and understand the logic that was implemented because the ui is not responding performantly it's going to take you hour and hour in my yeah. case it would take it was taking me hours i think i have like three hours logged just for trying to navigate through the the processes alone
2: mm.
0: to understand what i need to rewrite geez <clears throat> So, I mean, are you done with this? Topic? No, no, no. Just the, the this task of... Did you talk about what you're doing to it? Yeah, I'm replacing it with code. Yeah. All code? Just totally code solution? Like a triggers and apex? Most of it. Most of
1: it. There's okay. Like I said, the, the opportunity assignment, ownership assignment, I'm going to leave for now. Okay. And then we're going to run some regression tests and things like that. The other thing is, we didn't have any tests on this because this is all process and flow. And these are... Because this is at the opportunity level, these are critical automation pieces that you would normally want to know if whether or not regressively you broke something. Yeah. So that's another pro that we're getting out of doing this rewrite, or not rewrite, but what I'm calling a performance enhancement. <laughs> um, is that we'll get to test things. Yeah. And I'm writing it in a way that I can I can do all the proper scenarios and test and make sure that it's coming out. Because the the, the amount of logic, the amount of steps is huge. I mean, my class file is gigantic. And I try to break it up into multiple class files to kind of make it easier to maintain. Mm. But it's still long chain. Yeah.
0: And I guess, t- to be fair, you could have written tests for the processes, too. Right. But the processes were inefficient. They weren't performant. Right, I'm just, but just, just to make sure that, again, for like regression purposes, like, you can write tests that cover processes, process builder processes. Yes. It's just hardly anyone does. Yeah, there's no direct link between the test and the process. You're essentially just... Why, why is that? I mean, I, I feel like um, there's just as much of a link between a test class and a trigger as there is between a test class and a process builder. I'm mean, assuming that the, your test scenario is inv- invoking the process builder just as it would evoke a trigger by some kind of DML.
1: Yeah, I guess the, by link, I mean that... Let's see. It doesn't prevent you from migrating or doesn't prevent you from deploying that piece of functionality
0: without a passing test. It doesn't? Why not? Your test would fail. Your Apex test would fail. If someone were to break something in the process that violated, you know, the intended logic... I guess
2: that's true.
1: You know, I'm just no, making no. the point because... No, it doesn't. Okay. Well, does it?
2: Sure. I have to test to test that. The
0: only reason I'm that up is just to be, to, to be fair because there... There is, you know, there's this segment of people that are like, yeah, let's test our process builders or, or, you know, or just making the point that um, if, you're not, if you don't have test coverage of your process builder, it's not because it's not possible. It's just because you're not doing that.
1: But that's that's a- all dependent on, on when you deploy, if your process or your flow automatically activates during deployment. If that's true, then, then yes. But what I have seen is I have seen post-deployment of processes oh. and flows where that most current version isn't active. And yeah, I'm not sure right. why. Because sometimes it does seem to go inactive and sometimes it doesn't. There's some logical condition that I'm not aware of that dictates whether or not that happens. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of an iffy one for me. But if it's true that, that during deployment it's active and that logic will fire, then yes, you're, you can write tests and it will prevent the deployment and there's that linkage.
0: Yeah.
1: Otherwise, it's just this kind of free-floating thing. All right. The other thing that concerns me is the fact that it's so declarative and people, I say people, and this is a bit of a straw man, I, I agree, is that because it's so declarative, people are more prone to change on the fly in production without executing tests.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think I think you have to be fair. Watch out. <laughs> um, you know, your, your low coders out there are prob- probably, you know... Th- probably don't have the, what is it, the, the habit, the discipline, I'm not sure what the right word is, though, of, of making sure that, you know, you're not changing things in production, that when you do change things, those, those go through a build process, which includes, you know, tests and uh, regression reports and whatever, maybe even a QA process. Um, and, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you don't come from a software engineering background, you're just, that's not going to be a, um, a second nature thing for you. But, I, I mean, I guess one thing I'm curious about is just looking back at this. Was this something that just you can't do well with the low-code tools? Or that just, it just it happened to be not done well? It, was it, is, it the, is it a limitation of the tools of, of you know, process builders and flows in these things? Or is it a limit, or, was it a, or is it just, you know, we didn't use the tool, tools well?
1: It certainly is a limit of process builder processes. That tool is just not good for this type of thing. It's good for firing off, creating some quick tasks or creating a record, uh, a, some other related record or something when it needs to. It's good at creating tasks. It's good at sending emails. Um, It's good at scheduling time-based workflows type things. That's the things that it can do that it's good at. But it's not good for complex logic.
0: It's it's not good for business logic. Okay. that's what I thought I was hearing you say was that if you keep it simple then you're much more likely to and that seems that seems like an obvious statement but yeah keep it yeah. simple you're, you're less likely to run into problems with this um, okay so it's it's, it's, it's it's a limitation of the tool um, another thing I'm thinking is I don't I don't see necessarily anything if, if I look back at how we got to where we were with this or yeah. we are with this like, I'm thinking, what, what would we change? Because, in my opinion, like, d- depending on the type of software you're making, but for most of this business software, um, the, when you're implementing something for the first time, the, you know, the smart thing to do is stay pragmatic. You know, do the, what's the simplest thing that could possibly work, right? Mm-hmm. So one thing is you defer decisions as, as late as you responsibly can. And you also, when you do have to make those decisions, you do the simplest thing that could possibly work because you know um i know this is an over invoked thing but like the the um the eric Reese book um about you know uh, minimum viable products mm-hmm. what's it called Ugh, forget you know what? i know it but okay. i forgot the name yeah um but that's you know the it, it's like that same concept of the whole reason why we want to build an mvp is because we're going to we're going to learn we're, we're not just building a product right we're building knowledge and we're because we're going to, not only about the thing we're building, but also we're going to be collecting knowledge from the people who are using this. And we're going to learn about how it's actually used and how it actually performs in real world environments. And, and then, because most likely, let's go ahead and assume this because we've, the software industry has been around long enough that we can assume this. We're going to have to pivot. What we think is true right now, we're, we're experienced and wise enough to know that we're probably wrong. And we're, and I feel like as an industry, we're much better at like admitting that up front. Mm-hmm. It always scares me when people are very confident in their requirements. I'm just like, whoa! How do we dial this person back? How do we? How do I inject some skepticism into this person who thinks that their requirements document is just it's it's ready to go? I mean, ship it to the press, ship it, you know, get it bound, put it on the sh- put it on the shelves because it is it's done, it's perfect. Right. We spent six months on this, right? It's, <laughs> they used up all our budget on, yeah, exactly. on writing the document. I mean, and and those things scare the crap out of me in those kind of situations. Well, because we've been in those situations, right? So I think that, I mean, I generally like that philosophy. Yeah. You like this? I'll this sh- I'll one's drop. better. It's just, yeah. It's, it's got a lot any, more flavor to it, it. It does. It's not any higher alcohol or anything else. It's just, you know, I don't know if they, I think they do probably like triple decoction mashes and all kinds of, I don't know what they do. I don't know if they're just, and you know, they said they use all German malts and everything. Even the aftertaste has got subtle, subtle things going so on. So you can get this. I, I, okay. I, you, you can go to the website and they have a, like a beer finder, like where mm-hmm. you can find this in Texas and it is available here. Um, but the only place I could find it near me was Walmart, so I had to go to Walmart to get this. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also like the raised kind of texture on the uh, the label. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was noticing that. But no, we should do the simplest thing that could possibly work, because we don't know what's coming after this. I mean, this whole thing we're working on might get shit canned. And, you know, why would you waste a ton of effort when you could... Let's just let's do something simple right now. So, looking back, I don't know that... I don't I actually I mean I don't know I was not involved in the building of that thing so I can't mm-hmm. say for sure but I wouldn't be surprised at all if I if I wouldn't change anything on how what our process was like we used we use the tools at the time we thought were the right ones it was it was a certain level of complexity that that tool made sense. Now we've learned that there's going to be more complexity involved and now let's refactor. That's that's part like knowing that you're going to refactor you're going to have to refactor and just making that a part of your culture your process that's where we're supposed to be nowadays yeah so i don't think i don't look at this and think oh man we failed we wasted no we actually i mean there's always there's always waste because you you know what first of all when you start a project you know you you think you know where you're starting and where you're supposed to end but the truth is you don't know where you're supposed to end right and if you end up where you thought you were going to end up you probably built the wrong thing or you didn't take the opportunity to learn along the way right mm-hmm. um so yeah you don't you don't know where you're going to end up and you, and and it and assuming you could know where you're going to end up you it, the 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 pa- the straightest path to that endpoint is not clearly visible so we do our best and we have all these that's we have all these little techniques and sayings and and principles that we keep in mind when we do this so that overall we do mitigate risk and we do end up producing as much valuable uh, as much value as possible right so i don't know i agree with you okay 99% okay Well, that's good i'm i'm psh- I'm happy with that. If I can get you to agree with me 50%, I feel like I'm doing well.
1: The 1% part that I think should have changed how we'd built this was the fact that we were updating the opportunity on an opportunity trigger yeah. using process. Yeah. Same it's record danger zone. <laughs> Same record field updates yeah. in process and flow mean, especially if you have multiple steps doing that same thing, means that every one of those steps is modifying that record, yeah. causing other automations to fire and everything. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely people were using the tools that were provided. It was, they were doing the MVP. The requirements were not, this was very agile in the very loose sense in that requirements were coming and we were responding to those requirements and adding on to the existing automation. And as testing went on and as new requirements came in and new groups came in and offered their feedback, all of that was getting factored in. But there's some lessons to be learned here for that, for sure. Um, How much time do we have?
0: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm... Well, we should start cu- wrapping up pretty soon. Why? Yep. Well, because there's a part two to this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let's see. Let's let's do a check. Where are we at? We're at the one hour and 20 minute mark.
2: That's
1: normal. All yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I do want to get to this, this document because I think it's a great document. I want to put it in the show notes and I think everybody, yeah, everybody in the Salesforce ecosystem should at least read it and understand it because it's got some really good stuff about... Um, and a really good analysis on what, when to use what technology. Um, so this document, like I said, is, is titled "Architect's Guide to Building Record-Triggered Automation on Salesforce Using Clicks and Code." Um, it's got it even factors in some of the later stuff. This is a living document, so it factors in all of the new stuff that came out, like the before trigger or the before context in flow, and the after context that we have now in flow. Um, it also has recommendations for trying to reduce your use of process builder processes Hmm. in favor of flow um, and these new triggering mechanisms. There are things that flow can't, that process builder can do that flow cannot do. And by process builder, you can also toss in workflow, but hoping, I don't know, people are still using workflow.
0: No, I think workflow is still massively in use. Yeah. So you can still use that too, but
1: the main takeaways from this document are Number one, stop putting same record field updates into the workflow rules and process builder. Start putting same record field updates into before save flow triggers instead um, or APEX triggers. Uh, Number two is whenever possible, start implementing use cases and after flow triggers rather than process builder and workflow. Uh, And if you have high performance batch processing needs, expect highly sophisticated implementation logic. Use APEX. Yeah, I need to to read this. Sorry, I couldn't hear what
0: you said. I wasn't talking to you, Siri. Uh, yeah, I need to read that. That sounds like there's some good wisdom in that document. Yeah, it has, it has this great table that talks
1: about uh, same record updates, high performing batch jobs, um, different types across object CRUD operations, uh, complex logic, and things like that. And it kind of outlines, you know, which tool it that type of solution is viable for. Um, the nice thing to see here is that uh, on the ProCode <laughs> column. Uh, it's all green it's all of it's available um there are
0: very few things that are that are not that you're not able to accomplish with code you know that's that's one of the benefits again of of just not necessarily whether it's you know high or low code or whatever just some of these older things are the are this the most time tested they've been they've had every bug beaten out of them that's why i still do i talked about this i think last time i mean i a lot of it. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm still a little bit scared of the, of, of some the event system. Um, if it, especially if it's if it comes down to critical critical data, yeah. um, And I just, you know, Apex and triggers are just, you know, you got I mean, you got to give Salesforce credit. It's just very solid. Well, you have to give Salesforce credit, and you
1: have to give developers credit for all the. All the work they put into just gaining experience on that technology yeah Yeah. i mean triggers have their problems too i mean we have the recursive problem we have to deal with you know a
0: trigger could fire multiple times and we have to deal with that Mm -hmm. um there are certain but that that's a that's not a problem with the technology i'm talking about problems limitations and problems with the technology itself not with the implementation of that technology Cause right, I can. Well, I can it depends write, on your perspective. I can, you can say government limits are limitation that we have to work around. I, I guess maybe. Yeah, in, intended that. I guess there's a difference between intended limitations and accidental limitations.
2: Mm.
0: It's the accidental ones I don't like. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. But,
0: Yeah, but you know, with, you know, I feel like with Apex, you know, you. Maybe it's maybe it's because it's 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 a limited surface area. Although I feel like Apex is, um, it's got quite a not necessarily in terms of features, but in terms of APIs and things you can do now and access to features via code and on the platform, it's got a pretty big surface area, probably more so than anything else. Uh, but it, its performance characteristics and just what we know about it, I guess, is. Is better than a lot of the other tools that are. It's it's not quite clear what the performance characteristics are. It's not the limits aren't as clear when you when things go wrong. It's not clear what happened. I don't like that either. I don't yeah. like not when something goes wrong. I want to be able to. I need I need information so I can then go and research that. Yeah, some of the drawbacks
1: of the declarative tooling right now is definitely error handling. It's it's
0: and like one thing as a developer. Uh, and I, I kind of I'm, I'm always proud of when I when I see when someone comes to me and says, "Jeremy, the thing you you wrote broke." I'm like, "Okay, well, let's see." And and it's got a beautifully clear and precise mm. error message. I'm like, "I wrote that error message. <laughs> I worked hard on that. Like I worked hard on building a a message, an error message that that you know brought in the relevant information and everything else. Like because that's exactly why I took the effort. By the way, no one asked me to do that." Just what you do, right? And that's, thing, I think, as developers, like it's one of those things that a lot of us like doing is building really good error messages So, because you know at some point. You know, like Let's say you write a, a switch statement. You know, at the bottom of a switch statement, you should have the default, which is, well, none of the things I expected were in this list of things. So I'm going to throw an exception yeah. here. Yeah. And I'm going to say, uh, I was processing this type of blah, 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 and here's a record ID And I got this value that I didn't expect. And that and that's a pretty good error message. And when someone brings that to you, I mean they may not fully understand, but when you see it, you're like, oh, I know exactly what that is and I know exactly what to do. Or I know exactly what you did wrong with your data that I can tell you. Oh, well, you used something that wasn't in the pick list value or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Right. Um with with these low code tools, is it just as easy to build nice error messages when things go wrong?
2: No, (laughs)
1: okay, it's not as easy because with code, you do have the expressiveness of being able to have your switch statement and, and have that kind of fall through logic with the declarative tools. Everything is intentional, meaning you do your validation, then you put in a decision block that says, am I valid? And then you branch off from that decision block. So everything has to be extremely intentional. And it's also very tedious and time consuming because you are dragging little widgets around on the screen. so it's possible. It's just a lot more work. But in general, I would say that since we are m- moving declarative logic or, or whatever we want to call it, low code logic, more towards flow and obviously Apex. I kind of want to offer some advice on the low code side of things, on the flow side of things okay. from a developer perspective, the things that we've learned that we do that flow builders should also do
0: but, and i that's good can i pause you for one second because yeah. what i want to highlight the conclusion i think we just came to which is these low code tools make it harder to do the right thing that's what we just ended up on yes <laughs> i hate saying it but it, yes um, i mean i don't yeah I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be uh, I'm trying to think of this from an unbiased perspective. Like, I don't hate or love or any any of these conclusions. I'm just trying to get to the actual conclusions. And I think that's what we just concluded.
2: Yeah. Okay. All
0: right. So, if you're going to go low-code, when do you go low-code? Because we're all going to go low-code here and there. That's what we've been talking about. Right to for the job. Yeah. Be pragmatic. Simplest thing that could possibly work. Right? All those things. Yeah. All the tropes, which just, I, I think are... That's a pretty good value to them. Flow natics. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so if you're going to do that, then you've got some tips. Is that what you're saying? John's tips? Yeah. One one thing that you you should always do if you have a public
1: method, meaning anyone can consume that, you don't know who's going to pass what in, is to validate your inputs. Don't just expect that whatever someone passes you or whatever that flow receives as an input is always correct. It may be null.
0: It may be wrong. You should always validate your inputs how easy or hard do these tools make it to validate your inputs are there validation libraries that you can bring in and apply and regexes and things no i mean how does it how do, i don't know <laughs> how it not. works okay.
1: but you do you, essentially you would start off with a decision point after your start block with a decision point that would validate the values and you would branch off from there to say yes you gave me something valid no you didn't give me something valid obviously yes you would continue on with the rest of your flow no would be a stop and, and provide a message
2: Okay.
1: Um, Two is understanding the performance of things and what that means. Um, Whenever you create a block to access records, whenever you loop to those
0: records, I assume those result in like queries, maybe. Those result in queries,
1: and you are you are contributing to the limits. Unlike Mm -hmm. workflow with Mm -hmm. process builders and flow, you are contributing to the same limits that that developers deal with. So, trying to reduce. The number of queries you make, try to reduce the number of loops you do within the flow um, will help you in the long run as you add more to the system or as you perform additional automation, whether it's code or flow. So keep in mind the limits and how many, how many of those resources you're consuming. Um, also from a performance perspective is from Apex, we have certain things that provide performance. Like we can toss a list of S objects into a map and reference that map whenever we need to. We can pull a very specific record out of that map and deal with that record. Whereas with flow, you have to loop. So you have to say, okay, I need this record, loop through, find that record, give it to me, then I can do my thing and then I have to go and loop on to the next one if we're talking batch context.
0: And obviously that just that just is going to take time, but also does it take does it count against like time limits? Yes. Okay. So understanding
1: what happens when you're looping and how many you're looping Basically, understanding your bulk context, and obviously, if you have complex bulk lo- context, and even this document explores that, you probably don't want to use Flow for that, or any of these declarative tools. You kind of want to go to code. But if you have to, or or if it's the only thing available to you, sure, just be conscious of what is happening when you're looping, um, and what you're doing within that loop.
0: Yeah, because I, I mean, I can imagine you know looping through a, a a list of ten values once, no big deal. Looping looping through against of, you know hundred values, um, hundred times is a different thing.
2: Right.
1: Uh, also in that same context, if you're in a loop, do not do DML. Um, you'll run into a limit. Essentially, if you're looping through 100 records, you grab the one you need and then you do DML on that record and then you move on to the next one. After 100, your, your
0: process yeah. is dead. Yeah. Does, it, does it, do they let you build up like a list of things to do, like a, almost a unit of work type of thing where you can list, you know, you can somehow uh, batch these things, the DML at the end of, of this processing? Yeah. So you can create what's called a collection variable.
1: Um, And that really gets into my next point is within flow. You're asked to create a lot of different variables and you'll have that secondary tab that lets you see what all the variables you created. Some of them are automatically created for you. Some of them are the ones that you created. Just be very clear and intent, intentful on those variable namings, make them mean something, give them a good name it doesn't matter if it's short or long. Just make sure it means something to you because it'll help you later on to understand what that variable was. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a flow and just seen variable names that made zero sense. Yep. Var yep. one yeah. or, or param one or whatever. Yep. Um, and it just made no sense. So to help your future self, name things really well. Name your, your whatever steps or objects you have on the screen. Name those really well and name your variables really well.
0: Uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, the m- the more we try to do things right with these low code tools, they, the more that it starts to sound like coding tools. You know, collection variables and all these types of things. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So we're <laughs> we're we're back into data structures and looping through things. It's like, you know, this is <laughs> yeah. It's it's a very short step over to the to the world of, of textual code, where all the same concepts you just get a lot you know a lot more advantages over there, right? I I just I think we're going to see a lot of people jumping over to Apex. They're going to get a taste of they're going to get a taste of the power they have with with automation tools, mm-hmm. but then they're going to get they're going to hit some of these problems. And the more they learn about it, the more they're going to find out that maybe they should. They've already learned a lot of the concepts. Maybe they should just start looking at code. Well, that was and I think a lot of people obviously a lot of people have done that. Yeah. I mean, this is not like I'm not telling some new story here. Lots of people have gone down this path. Yeah, but I, mean, what, you know, I don't know. Well, I was going to get to my to one of my
1: final tips, and okay. that is embrace hybrid. There are going to be things that that need to be declaratively configurable because it's, it's some kind of business rule. Maybe it's some kind of business calculation or some kind of formula that has to be in the flow. But you do have the option of invoking Apex. So you can gain some of your performance out of that. You can do all your input, all your input um, decision logic in the flow and then have it execute. Maybe it executes an approval process or executes some business logic or some call-out or something. Those are things where you can embrace and create that hybrid
0: approach and, and gain kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean that, that makes sense. I mean you almost um you cr- create like um you know a a tree with branches mm-hmm. with your low code and then you know you maybe working with a developer who then starts hanging leaves off of those branches, right? right? In a way. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: And the code the code can do the heavy lifting. It can do all the performance specific stuff. Yeah. And all you need to do is define all of the highly dynamic decision points that that may or may not change. Why am I clicking?
0: A little bit. It's yeah. Yeah. You're
1: okay. Um and you can do that, and that's always been my dream. When whenever these low code tools came out, was that hybrid approach. Um, it just doesn't seem like we're we're always in that mindset that we can
0: do that. I'm also not sure that's a good division of labor. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it 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 oh I don't want to, okay. So in one way you could say it. Gets, in some way it's kind of devaluing the developer in a in a in a way because you're. You have des- already designed and put placeholders that you just need some, you know, you could be a GPT-3 to write you some code to fill those things in, which mm-hmm. is fine, if that's all it takes. Um, the question is, is that, is that good? I mean, is that, a, is, that a, is that going to work well? Well, So I'll give you a good example. In fact, I just did this for, for, for Sarah.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, she, she had a screen that she needed to build, and it's a flow, and it's a screen flow, and it has, has to... The entry point is an approval process. So someone gets an email and says, "Hey, go approve this record." They click on the link. It actually sends them to the flow. I gave her two methods, invocable methods. One to find the the uh, approval process because if you look at the approval process, it's split between three or four objects: the process instance, the steps, or the history. You can get both, or the work item. And what I do is I take just the input, the person that's that's. The screen is on the current user and the record that needs to get approved. Mm -hmm. And I do the work of going to find that record in, in all those instances. I look in the history and I look for the step and I provide I provide a composite data set back to her that says, "Okay, here's your work item ID. Here's the actor. Here's the here's whatever information about that process that you need. She then goes off and does all the screens that ask the user for information, whether or not they want to approve. And then the last thing is she invokes my method that says, "Okay, here's your work item. And they said, approve it or reject it. And they send that off to me, and my code does the rest. Yeah.
0: I think she demoed that this week.
1: Did she? I think so. I mean, that's, that's a great use of hybrid where and, yeah. where I'm able to kind of create the efficiency and abstract her from having yep. to deal with that whole process object model and having to do
0: all of that, all those and steps and things. She just asks for it, and I give it to her. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, as long as a person that's like orchestrating all this, you know, has the right skills. And
1: that's where I say we haven't really merged well as I'm saying this generally in the ecosystem that I don't think the declarative low code and the pro coders (laughs) have created that kind of mental mindset where we can do that hybrid.
2: And I don't know how to
0: get there. Yeah. I mean, I I think we, I think ideally we get to a place where people who are choosing to use low code tools, it, They're choosing to do that, not because that's the only thing they know, but because it's the, it happens to be, they've got, they've got this, they've got the skills, they've got, they understand the data structures and performance issues and error messages and error handling, all that kind of stuff. But it just happens to be the best tool to get this job done. And so they can design it well with these plug in points, extension points for, for uh, other tools, other code or whatever it is. That's kind of, I mean, that's, I mean, maybe kind of a where we're heading with us. Yeah, it, it does. I think it
1: does need to be a top down, like the low coder has to see that either something is way too hard to do in the flow, but there's not necessarily a reason to abandon the flow. So why not hybridize it and have someone supplement or augment my flow with the ability to kind of do something more high performant, return the information I need or execute the action that I need um, within that context. Yeah.
0: And I and I guess I'm thinking of, you know, thing, things intentionally designed with uh, these things versus just you're, you're stumbling into problems and trying, oh, every time you hit a problem, you're like, oh, can I get my developer to help me out of here? And I, that's, I that's, think the latter is easier to solve than the first.
1: Trying to know ahead of time that you're going to need to do that, I'm not sure.
0: Well, I maybe so, but I'm, I'm thinking the other way is better because, I mean, you're going to end up with a crappy design if you just, if every time you trip yourself up because you didn't design this thing right. Um, you're just you're, you know you're you're going for kind of wh- whoever can bail you out at that point. And you just keep doing that, keep doing that. You're not going to end up with a good design. You're, no, I you're see gonna it more with as the same a, problems that we've been talking about. I see it more as a ref- as a refactoring exercise. It might, it might be, but again, it's it's across multiple people. It's a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Again, do we have good? Um, can I just push a branch to you and you pull it down and you do things and push it back out to me? Do we have that? We're not even there yet with this kind no. of stuff. Right. So <laughs> no dev uh, isn't available uh, yet. Right. So. I mean, we're, you know, we're <laughs> s- very, very slowly getting there, but we're not there. So I don't know. It's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I wish there were more, there's just, there's just so much misinformation about these tools. Unfortunately. And I think information is out there. Like this document, that uh, yes. kind of, does that. But yeah, yeah,
1: Salesforce marketing definitely Mm. is responsible for a lot of misinformation out there on this.
0: Well, John, that was a a good, uh, I think that was a good topic. You had some good tips there. And we'll, you know, obviously this is a topic that's not going away. And we'll, uh, as as we learn, and as we, I don't know. I'm sure plenty of people out there have tips. Where can they go to share those tips, Jeremy? Well, that's a good question. There's lots of places to share them, but one place I would suggest would be the Good Day Sir slack team is it a team is that what you call these i call it a community but okay sure slack, team. yeah well i mean it's a community it's a good day sir community one of the tools we use to communicate is a slack team and uh if dear listener if you aren't if you have not joined the slack team yet i highly suggest you do so and you do that by going to gooddayserpodcast.com and you click on community and you just register yourself there it's really easy just an email address there's a lot of people there talking about the stuff we're just talking about and helping and laughing and crying, sobbing, whatever. It depends on the day. Uh, we also have an email address, info at gooddayserpodcast.com, where you can send us uh, questions. We don't get many questions these days anymore. I don't know. So y'all, come on, get at us mm-hmm. with the questions, please. Or you can just, you know, c- tell us what buttholes we are or how we gotten everything wrong. That's fine, too. We, I mean, if you give us permission, we'll, we'll read your feedback on the air. and that's We like doing that. Um, other than that, just, uh, share, share this, share the, uh, the good word of this good pot, good day, sir, podcast <laughs> and this community with your uh, friends and coworkers and your enemies, let them know, share it on the, on the socials and uh, click all the likes and the hearts on your podcast machines, because supposedly, I don't know, it does And something. somewhere in uh, Marco Arment's, uh, algorithm, uh, it's going <laughs> to push us up or something. I don't know, maybe uh, in the Apple store or the good or the Google store. I don't. That's just what everyone says. I don't know that we know that any of that's true, but uh, We do like sharing your feedback though, so the feedback right, reviews yeah, are nice, yeah um yeah, and just um yeah the the feedback is great, and then also just um the the community participation that we've got is uh it's an, it's a it's a good thing, so if you haven't got involved, you should check it out even if you're just going to lurk, you can lurk, that's fine until you decide you have something to say. It's a thing what else, John? that's it. I've hit my limit yeah i have I have two it's. <laughs> Time so done. <laughs> you're <laughs> dropping stuff. You have to, you're cut off after one and a half beers and a, uh, a Roku gin. Yeah, you're cut off. Oh, and to that, I said, good day, sir. You get nothing, you lose. Good day, sir.